Thirty years ago, Joe Carducci pissed off many a po-faced esthete with the publication of Rock and the Pop Narcotic. He set out to make important distinctions between rock music proper and the pop frauds typically mistaken for the real thing. With cool certainty, Joe dared to dismiss such critical safe bets as Dylan, Bowie, Buzzcocks, Swans, R.E.M., as Sham, while upholding a living rock tradition peopled with the likes of Black Sabbath, Robin Trower, Ramones, Motorhead, Minor Threat, Melvins, and the early roster of SST Records, the L.A.-based label he helped steer in its early to mid-80s prime. The breezy dismissals were no bluff. They were the hard-won fruit of a lifetime of careful listening that made Joe unusually attentive to the nuances of how rock music works and is separate from neighboring genres like folk and R&B. For all of its inflammatory language against the progressive critical establishment, Rock and the Pop Narcotic is ultimately a constructive book, the first to offer a convincing definition and defense of rock as a musical form with its own dignity and force, considered in isolation from the distractions of fashion, politics, and even lyrics. The book has become a kind of cult classic. There's a recognition that Joe has hit on something deeply true and undeniable, even if many readers aren't prepared to pitch their royal trucks and Jesus and Mary Chain records. Joe's other major music book is called Enter Naomi, SST, LA, and All That, a non-polemical and at many points touching blend of history and memoir with a special focus on the late photographer Naomi Peterson. His latest book, Stone Mail, Requiem for the Living Picture, is Joe's major statement on film and many years in the making, a totally idiosyncratic and obsessive tonic that has much in common with rock and the pop narcotic. It tracks the history of non-professional actors in American film, from the dawn of motion pictures through the 1970s, with dips into Soviet and world cinemas. Be prepared for lots of violent bashing of socialist realism, operatic film acting, and the inability of American film criticism to engage with national treasures like Randolph Scott, Bud Bedecker, and Clint Eastwood. There are also startling connections made between that doodly world and filmmaker Sergei Karajanov from Armenia, whose highly original rich work is similarly rooted in a vital folk tradition. Once again, Joe is advancing a deeply personal and bracing aesthetic that demands to be reckoned with. That's a lot of words, but I hope the context helps. It's a long chat that's well worth your time. So crack open an adult beverage, shoo away your spouse and kids, and enjoy. Rock and the Pop Narcotic turns 30 this year. What do you think is the book's legacy? When I wrote it, I was trying to, in a sense, present a, a book quickly that you know might include bands that people had just heard about um, two or three months ago. You know, even even the people on everyone's promo list. So, you know. I thought it might people might read it and think in uh, 1991 that um, this reads like a fanzine because mm-hmm. it's got brand new bands in it, <laughs> you know, from late '90 when I put it to bed, and uh, <clears throat> so I was thinking more like the moment and pushing people in in a direction about one friend who. Um, still writes for the Chicago Reader, Peter Margusak. He had a fanzine called Butt Rag. And, mm. uh, and he he said it, the book, it struck him how predictable music was after he read the book. Bands were just getting signed to major labels in 89 and 90, you know, not quite uh, succeeding. That was... 91, 92, 93. So, you know, in that sense, I, I, I wasn't thinking about um, uh, breakthroughs. It seemed like that would never happen. I was going to say the Ramones, 
Patti Smith, those those were the original voices you heard. I mean, if you read The Enemy or fanzines, you you read weirdos like uh, David Thomas or, you know, other other characters. But people who got into newspapers and on the radio or TV even, just in terms of interviews, when they, Don Kirshner's had the Ramones on or the American, you know, Dick Clark would have, have them on and ask them a question or two. And um, they talked about the kids and giving the kids better music, basically. And, you know, the kids showed up in L.A. thanks to Black Flag and maybe, you know, Rodney Bingenheimer and, a few, you know, a few important people in the industry. So even before mass sales of Nirvana or Bad Religion, the kids showed up to punk rock or new wave and uh you know the adults didn't like it <laughs> mm-hmm. you know the adult punk rockers didn't like being shoved around or uh, you know pushed around by an unruly crowd and you know so there were these splits that tell you that it's just not like the audience flips on and nirvana sells millions you know, it took 15 years for that to happen uh, with all kinds of, you know, forward steps, side steps, backward, uh, you know, and it's funny because the, the major labels did try. They, they signed punk rock, but radio was just in a world of platinum economics at that point. They just, they were in a conspiracy basically with the major labels and the distributors and they preferred selling 10 million albums to selling, you know, 10 albums that sold a million, never mind, you know, yeah. records that sold 100,000. Is the situation better now or in recent years where a band like White Stripes or High on Fire can land Grammys? Does legitimate rock kind of have a place at the table now? You know, it's, it's, it's always confusing because, you know, Billboard magazine was very good to SST in the sense that they reviewed Minuteman, What Makes a Man Start Fires. I don't remember if they reviewed Punchline. Uh, And they reviewed Black Flag and some later records. So the trade magazine, Cashbox, was going back then, too. They did review some of our records. I, I don't know if it's because Greg and Chuck were kind of known, and they were, un- unlike most punk rock musicians, they were very approachable, and they didn't cop an attitude when they talked to a radio music director or a major label A&R guy. I mean, even some of our bands on SST, like the Meat Puppets, or I know they could kind of flip out in talking to uh, Rick Rubin or somebody who could sign them. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. I don't know what, they were conflicted in some weird way. They obviously wanted to be successful and wanted to be on a major label, but they didn't all, they, they weren't all realistic. And um, I mean, I think Greg and Chuck were interested in learning from those guys and ascertaining how hip they were, how open they were. But the whole system couldn't deal with a record. You know, when I before I was even at SST, I was thinking, how do you go around those people? You know, we were doing the Dead Kennedys singles at Systematic on our label Optional, and um, I I thought, 
my idea, I don't think I ever broached it to the band because the owner of Systematic wasn't, he, he didn't move on things. And um, my idea was to let's do a 12-inch record with the Dead Kennedys and advertise it on late-night television, you know, because they have the name that will stick with people and they'll be outraged and uh, letter-writing campaigns to get this <laughs> off my television and maybe we'll sell 100,000 records, you know, before, you know, you you even learn to crawl. We reissued California Uberalas for the Dead Kennedys and sold a thousand then we sold another thousand then um they put holiday in cambodia out we did three thousand of that on its first run on optional then it then before we repressed that three thousand they went to the irs uh, irs family of labels i don't know which label they were on actually and their their album <clears throat> came out in england and came in as an import and it kind of hurt them but anyway you know you're dealing with 3,000, 5,000 of a significant band in its early days. So you're, you're talking, you know, how do you get around that? that? That's what you're thinking in those days. I think one of the main contributions of rock and the pop narcotic is that it doesn't just take for granted what rock music is. It sets out to define rock music as a specific aesthetic. And your definition, this is kind of a ham-fisted version of it, but like a visceral human music with like a guitar, bass, drums configuration. How did you work out your particular aesthetic for what constitutes rock? Well, I was at Systematic. We were, the easy stuff was the British stuff because our relationship was, <clears throat> we were Rough Trade's outlet in America. And, and that's Rough Trade, the distributor, and Rough Trade, the label. And so <clears throat> we did promo mailings um, for the records they put out, which, you know, were a little bit, they weren't as commercial as some of the labels they dealt with as a distributor. So like Factory and Crass always outsold stuff on Rough Trade, the label. But people were interested in Rough Trade. But as, you know, we go from 78, 79, 80, 81, there's a lot of change in the British scene. While I'm writing for <clears throat> individual self-released small label records across America that I'm reading about in Slash or Trouser Press or uh, New York Rocker or fanzines, you know, to get a sample, decide if we want to take 50 copies, 100 copies, 200 copies for distribution in America and mail order. We're, we're getting all of this British stuff. And I was pouring through the NME and putting a list to ask the London office, you know, can we get this? Is it any good? <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, you know, should we get 50? Should we get 200? And we got most of that stuff, not all of it. But I could see that the British music culture was, I mean, they believed Malcolm McLaren that the Sex Pistols were to destroy rock and roll. And thereafter, you could only have post-punk. And their idea of post-punk turned into something a little more solid, you know, five years later, um, you know, when I'm at SST. But at the time, you could see that the impulse to pick up a guitar and to find a drummer and a, and a singer and form a band was debased. 
So McLaren prophecy or whatever was <clears throat> was sort of um, maybe designed because he heard it happening himself, that the music culture was failing. You know, people in the 50s, the Beatles, the Stones, in the 60s, uh, you know, all kinds of people, uh, Robin Trower, you know, Humble Pie, these guys were obsessed with American records, you know, rock and roll, then they went into the blues or they went into country music and studied it, you know, learned how the, how the drumming worked, how the bass player helped the drummer, how, how the guitar went on top of that. And they weren't doing that anymore after punk and after crass in particular introduced the political element that, that, that was what was important. And even, you know, going earlier, David Bowie, you know, considered himself a, a blues singer or, a, you know, a blues folk singer. And um, they just were decoupling from the American culture. During World War II, they first heard the R&B and the big band jazz and pop music of America in a way that was overwhelming. So they hated it, uh, but they loved it. And it developed, you know, into different things because of, you know, all kinds of stuff that went on in this country. You know, there was a band from New Orleans called The Normals, and they did a, a seven-inch record. And it's really good. I mean, it's like the Heartbreakers or um, Johnny Thunders style, you know, rock and roll. The songs are a little bit long, so it's not hardcore. But it just came out, and then, you know, we we carried it maybe twice. We might be able to sell 50 copies and then 25 copies. But, um, you know, we probably sold 100 copies of uh, Joe Head 45, you know, one of the guys from uh, Swell Maps or, you know, mm-hmm. did, did, did some weird split of uh, from Wire, you know, never mind the, how many albums Wire sold when they were on a major. It wasn't much for an American band. It didn't matter how good you were. And, you know, I, I gravitated towards SST and Black Flag because they toured. I knew from working with the Dead Kennedys that if you didn't tour, you know, nothing would change. One interesting thing that I think would maybe confounded readers of Rock and the Pop Narcotic is that at the same time as a lot of these punk bands are, are basically dumping on rock tradition, there are some punk and hardcore bands that you would consider like an extension of that rock tradition. So like the Dead Kennedys or Minor Threat or Black Flag, you would consider like the current rock music at the time. Whereas a band like Crass or some of these other post-punk bands, but it also goes for post-punk as well too, because I know you love bands like Spherical Objects and The Fall, but you know, a band like the Buzzcocks would probably not rate or some of the other post-punk bands without, you know, rock rhythm sections going. I imagine that was something that was confounding to people because they're like, we see this as all the same. But you're saying it takes like a special discernment to actually sort out stuff that is all in the same category at your local record store. Well, you know, you know, from your own uh, listening that your, your reaction changes to the same record over time. And, um, you know, part of that is familiarity and anticipation. And then just that 
on first listen, you know, it's like the superficial dominant guitar and the singer is is maybe all you pay attention to. And then later on, you begin to listen down into the rhythm section and you form a better judgment of, you know, how how good is this? And really, for me, the lyrics are probably about the last thing I focus on, you know. Uh, I'll get to the lyrics if I really like a song, Mm -hmm. just because you'll want to know the totality of it all. But I remember Mike Watt saying in interviews, um, you know, just emphasizing how naive they were as they started a band and, you know, in their, uh, you know, in their garage or wherever they started, that um, he didn't know what a bass was. You know, you, you listen to a, a record coming out of the radio or your record player, and you, it was just a thing that was coming at you all at the same time, and you didn't separate it out. You know, that's that's you know that's typical. That's part of the magic of uh, of uh, music of a song. Um, but you know, over over time, <laughs> I mean, I, I didn't really work closely with bands until I was at SST because it was Black Flag's label and they were practicing, you know, nearby. And uh, and then I was in the recording studio more often uh, in L.A. than I had been in uh, Portland or Berkeley. And, you know, you begin to see the music taken apart, put together in the mixing, and um, what works acoustically, putting a record together, whether it's the Minutemen or St. Vitus, you know, two completely different soundscapes. Mm-hmm. And, and and you begin to, you know, if you're me, you you begin to devalue the music that is more studio producer-oriented, that emphasizes uh, textures and moods. And, you know, I listened to electronic music in, in the 70s, and so I wasn't a, a rock-exclusive person. But anyway, that's, um, you know, that's how you begin to develop a critical faculty about, you know, how well is this band playing? You know, maybe it's not uh, a produced record in in the sense, but, you know, we if you're my age, you know, I'm 65, I was 15 in 1970, so like somebody just posted on Facebook a, a Grand Funk Railroad uh, song from, you know, the Silver Dollar record, uh, which is late <laughs> Grand Funk. But uh, it's always kind of interesting when somebody posts something of theirs because they were so dominant, and then they dried up and blew away, and nobody heard Grand Funk again. Mm-hmm. Um you know, the crowd noise on the first Perubu album is from Grand Funk Live. and um, Oh, I had no idea. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and uh, it's, you know, it's the obvious album to, to take it from because everyone had that album. And, you know, there was the Mark, Don, and Mel box set, uh, you know. They each had a each had a box set, or yeah, I forget exactly. It was really a bonanza <clears throat> because they were really nothing but a garage band, but they came in at that album rock peak and got on the radio before it was formatted, and um, you know, kind of stayed on the radio pretty good. I was on the receiving end of all that stuff, and I found it interesting as I got into the 
record business on the independent label end of things, you know, my book I thought would be valuable because I knew that writers tried to stay away from music, you know. It's like I one time I wrote some liner notes or, you know, not even liner notes, but like um, just some PR ballyhoo for a video box of a of a a movie about a rock band, you know, it was a a narrative fictional feature film called Born to Lose. So on the box, I just made some usual routine about this movie shows you, you know, the the reality behind the lights and the you know <laughs> and the glamour or whatever. And Bill Stevenson read that and he goes, I don't think people want to know what's behind the lights and the glamour. <laughs> and, you know, that's that's the way rock critics are, you know, and movie critics in a way. They don't want to they, get their hands dirty with the mechanics of it. Yeah, they, you know, they want to, they're like a tuning fork. They just want the work to hit them uh, cleanly and then they'll respond automatically almost. And so they don't really want to know about, you know, the different guitar players. And, you know, of course, they write about the pop end of things, and you don't know who's playing on those records, you know, and whether the live record is really live, you know, because, you know, in the business, people go in and uh, record over the bass player's parts or the drummer's parts. That's not how we did it, because we were part of the cult of live. Yeah. This band is live, and you can watch them play the music. And so you go to the Meat Puppets, you, you know, you could you could hear them do their same songs any uh, different kind of way. And they might pull a cover song out of the out of thin air that you never would expect. Or you could go see Jesus and Mary Chain grind through, you know, whatever, 50-minute set of very carefully constructed music that if you threw them a uh, syncopation the whole thing would fall apart they they aren't they aren't musical in the way of a jazz improvisational or even the rock and roll version of that you can't throw an extra ball into what they're juggling and that's more pop than rock yeah yeah i mean sometimes you're amazed that the band you're seeing can actually play what they're playing as simple as it is you wonder is that you know, that's probably all they can play they played that thing 10,000 times and they can do it and they can all finish on the same time but you know is is that precision musical mm-hmm. you know that's a different question and it's it's hard because drumming is is so difficult to do well that you almost can't learn it. You know, you're you're just wired to do it or, you know, go to college. <laughs> go do something else. I think you're going to hate me, but I'm going to read a quote because I think it sort of captures the fact that there's, there's an almost mystical quality to some of your writing in Rock and the Pop Narcotics. So here's the quote. The art of rock music is found at the superheated nexus in performance where each musician, while playing his part in the material, hears and feels and anticipates the greater whole as it is being reincarnated. This whole, a multidimensional simultaneity, is at once solid and evanescent. I don't even think I have a question here, but I'm just, it's just more an observation that you're, you're somewhat of a rock purist 
um, who's at the same time, you're like the Andre Bazin of rock critics. Have you ever thought of that? Well, I'd have to remind myself what Bazin was known for. <laughs> but, ah, uh, French you know, Catholic but... mystic kind of film <laughs> critic. Do you see your spiritual qualities in the music at the same time as you're sort of describing the mechanics of how this actually works? There's there's something beautiful and like poetic in in this as well too that that makes you take well, notice and pay what made attention. me dwell on that or try to describe it was I guess I'm describing the danger, the pitfalls that are laid in front of you because you know where the if you're the player and I'm I'm thinking into the center of the band and you're a player and I've never been a player. So I'm the outsider trying to valorize what it is they're doing. And they're, <coughs> you know, the, the cliche is that the white boy in the band is going to rush the tempo. Uh, how can you rush the tempo? Well, you're anticipating, you know, the song you've learned it, but that's not really what you're doing in American musical forms, uh, whether it's gospel, jazz, rock, blues, country, any of the rhythmic folk musics, you have to know when to play the next note. And that isn't a melodic question, uh, really. It's a rhythmic question. And you have to know when everybody else is going to play that next note. And uh, if they are, you know. So anyway, that, that's, that was my attempt to give that that um, process its due because it's not a simple matter. It's a simple matter if you go see Red Hot Chili Peppers or, um, I don't know, at different times, you know, some of these lighter weight L.A. bands, Social Distortion, Bad Religion, have been pretty good. You know, they, they got different players. Chuck Biscuits on drums is always a good thing to do. Mm-hmm. Um, at their worst, what they were doing was based on they all listened to a click track at the same time uh, in the studio. They learned how to be professionals in a way that is designed for lesser musicians. You know, you don't put a click track in Jimi Hendrix's headphones. You know, not not everyone you work with is Jimi Hendrix, but you want to work with musicians who have their own voice. And then you do not want to pave over that voice with a click track or, you know, multiple uh, trackings of the same instrument. And that tends to be what they did in in England. You know, so the producer and the engineer, the A&R guy, you know, they begin to have more tr- more say. And so a band like... Um, Status Quo was, or Budgie, those were the live generic hard rock bands that came out of the 70s and and uh, maybe the 60s. You know, they weren't interfered with too much in the studio. But by the time you get to New Order or The Cure, those bands had to, to in order to succeed, those bands had to, in a sense, do do it to themselves because the you know the climate or the uh, zeitgeist had to make it believable to a pretentious audience that they were listening to art mm-hmm. you know post punk artists um cutting edge artists sound designers 
worthy of their attention. Well, you know, <laughs> the normals <laughs> in New Orleans, uh, they're not going to rate with those yeah. people ever. And that's sad, but that was the case for, you know, 15, 20 years. Those bands uh, were in their prime in a time when they could not be heard. And Black Flag sort of forced the issue and got heard, you know, to some extent. I mean, I think they would have sold a gold album nationally if the rest of the country had been as advanced as Los Angeles. But... It, they you know the cities weren't and, um, and so you've got big sales in LA of damaged and minuscule I mean it's it's like I don't know it's just like a um, it's it's like a typical independent release of those years although it kept selling reviewers of rock and the pop narcotic frequently commented on your politics and your perceived sexual politics. Was it frustrating that in the same way that so much music writing is over-concerned with things like fashion and politics and style, some of these critics were failing to engage with your main arguments in the book and getting sidetracked by this other stuff? Well, yeah, I mean, sometimes they would say, well, you're writing about politics in your book. You know, again, I I conceived of the book as not that I was going to... Um, cheerlead uh, the zeitgeist, I, I thought, what does the zeitgeist need? You know, the failure of rock writing needed to be addressed. I didn't grow up reading rock critics. You know, I'm not that, and I, I never had a lot of spending money, so I would buy singles or albums later with what, what money I had, listen to the radio mostly. You know, it's like, um, you know, in uh, the movie Almost uh, Famous, Cameron Crowe has himself as, you know, the 17-year-old Rolling Stone wannabe uh, critic, you know, or mm -hmm. whatever. He's not really a critic. He, he, he knows he's not a critic. He, he was really a, a PR-type writer, I guess. I don't know. You know, he did profiles of bands. So he puts, I think I'm right, it's Lester Bangs that he puts in the movie. I've noticed this about Lester Bangs, maybe because he died probably in 1980 or, you know, soon after, and and uh, he's safe. He's become a totem for people like Greil Marcus and Cameron Crowe and uh, other people. They're not all the same, but they're they're using him as a as some kind of a, you know, spiritual gold standard for, you know, the pure thing, whatever rock writing, you know, could be as a pure thing. Mm -hmm. And that's a little odd because they, nobody's, nobody's, uh, you know, done writing about records. That's, well, what would you call it? Jejun or uh, <laughs> beneath, you know, the level of their uh, intellectual powers. I mean, you know, he, he went off the rails and reviewed, you know, fake albums just as exercises in comedy. And, you know, that's all part of rock and roll, not not being uh, opera or, you know, not being uh, classical music. It's it's a, a fun form and it, it allows you to joke around and stuff. But anyway, it, it, you know, it, it's, it, it is weird that someone who had, I mean, if, if, if Lester Bangs and uh, Richard Meltzer had influence, 
you know, it's it's on Byron Coley and me and some even more obscure, you know, fanzine writers. Mm-hmm. But it's not, you know, it's it's not a major tradition. And for people to know Lester Bangs from a Cameron Crowe movie, you know, it's not it's not it's his best movie, <laughs> uh, which is uh, not saying too much. But you know, it's 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 good. I mean, he was a witness, and he got that on screen. I didn't I didn't think actors could play musician until I saw that movie, and he 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 got that um, kind of passive aggressive, uh, you know, resentment. I'm the star, but I'm not big enough. <laughs> uh huh. Yeah. Of of that era in particular, but you know, there's a little bit of that uh, sort of klutzy bravado in rock and roll. You you make it cool because you know you step on stage like you belong there. Before we go on to Stone Mail, I just had to quickly ask about a couple bands that weren't mentioned in Rock and the Pop Narcotic. You mentioned virtually every band that was happening at the time, but there were a few omissions that I'm just curious about whether you think they rate as rock. I'm thinking like Poison Idea and Laughing Hyenas. I had the uh, Poison Idea 45, you know, the first one. So I must have listened to it. And, and um, you know, I've since heard either that again or later stuff that I liked quite a bit. So I think they belong in the book. It turns out they used to listen to my KBU radio show in the 70s and um they were young and they hadn't started a band yet but i've i've seen them talk about it in interviews the laughing hyenas were on uh uh touch and go Is that yes right? yeah yeah i uh i have i know i have one of their records and uh recall exactly my you know ascertainment of of them at the time but <laughs> i never saw them live or anything but uh, Corey gave me some promos at some point when I was back in Chicago, and I was a little bit uh, disappointed in the Chicago sound, just because it seemed to be, you know, constricted and uh, not taking advantage of the Chicago blues uh, inheritance. And I was always a little disappointed in uh, sh- Chicago's contributions to to the punk era. You know, there were so many bands that had that kind of an aggro sound that when you're asking young men to go up on stage and express themselves, there's an impulse they have to deny the expressiveness by yelling and screaming and, you know, uglifying <laughs> the tones. <laughs> and um, and, I, and I thought, you know, that, that Chicago was particularly, you know, Kind of, it's kind of a blue-collar town even then, uh, although it's changed. It was not fully changed in the sense that a lot, I think a lot of typical Chicago guys thought that it was not a good thing to be up on stage unless you, you know, sc- started screaming. <laughs> you know? And, uh, you know, uh, and every every band is like that. It's just, I... I it was coming from Los Angeles, and I I thought the uh, the South Bay bands were particularly brave about what they put up on stage and how much confidence they had in their own slang, their own uh, belief in their songs and their playing, and and they really drove themselves within the band and within the group of bands that were 
friends. They drove each other and themselves to get really good at playing and really good at songwriting and really interesting at departing from, you know, traditions or then ultimately readapting to a tradition. Would you say Stone Mail is intended to be the film equivalent of rock and the pop narcotic? Um, in a way, I had to th- had to think of it as a, a pair. Uh, I started it right after um, Rock and the Pop Narcotic. I started to work on it, although it took forever. But um, I uh, had not really written about films. I kept track of the films I saw once I got interested. You know, in um, high school, probably junior year of high school, I started, I just clicked to films in a way that I hadn't before. And I suddenly knew that, uh, oh, you you could go see these old films besides uh, W.C. Fields and and, uh, the Three Stooges and study old Hollywood and study uh, foreign films and uh, silent films. And so at that point would make a notation of what I'd seen, you know, there was no, it was hard to find any kind of uh, reference books about movies, you know, back in, uh, that would have been 1971. You know, to, to study film is, is, is quite different than studying music. I would be buying, you know, I was working on Rock and the Pop Narcotic when everyone was dumping their LPs for CDs. So it was fortuitous because I could I could spend $20 and get six or seven albums. And I was doing research, so I didn't care if they were beat-to-hell party albums <laughs> uh, or, you know, clean, collectible things. I was able to do that research on the cheap. And for films, in, those, in the early days, you know, you, it wasn't accessible. You had to go go see the film while you could or blow it off and not ever see it. You know, you'd have a chance, you'd have to chance never seeing it again. And for me, you know, I'm busy. I'm in the record business or I'm, you know, doing whatever. And um, so the videotape, <clears throat> the videotape and uh, cable TV, and now, yeah, now this stuff is so accessible, you begin to wonder does this mean you don't need criticism, music criticism, film criticism? Um, you can do it. You could do the research easier than ever. You know, <laughs> yeah. there's nothing, nothing in your way now, <laughs> but uh, there's almost no purpose to doing it. Although you do, I mean, in a way, the publishing business kind of understands monographs about one thing, like, you know, here's a history of salt, you know, that's a good book, <laughs> you know, now, I suppose there's a survey of, uh, Appalachian, uh, gospel music or, you know, I mean, academic literature is a little different, but publishing, I'm told you can't publish books. And then there's actually a bunch of small books out. I'm reading, uh, Adele Bertai's book about uh, Peter Lochner. Michael Belfer of The Sleepers has a book out. Great. I mean, I, I wondered about The Sleepers because I barely got to see them. You know, was so into their records, and uh, and and now there's a book. So you know, you really understand how these guys were 
trying to do their music and they were distracted by their own uh, problems and the, the, the city's limitations, you know. So Stone Mail celebrates a tradition of non-trained action acting in the movies and westerns and action films. It's full of names like Francis Ford, who is uh, filmmaker John Ford's brother, Charles Bronson, Richard Farnsworth, and Clint Eastwood. Did the advent of method acting in film studies as a university discipline ruin this tradition of the non-trained actor? Uh, not, not really, because, you know, what they're trying to learn how to do not so much in the 40s and 50s, but once you're talking about today, if people are studying acting, they're, they've circled around to the natural uh, performance of these stuntmen. So, you know, you have highly trained theatrical actors who are coming to Hollywood from Australia or Ireland or England and... and um, and they're in. They get put in action movies, and they're not trying to be Marlon Brando. They're trying to be Ben Johnson, or John Wayne. Or they're all kind of different. It's like Clint Eastwood is not really like Charles Bronson, but they were both um, doing uh, major work in the period that I was getting serious about movies in the early '70s. So they're sort of the twin poles of you know. You go back from. Bronson and Eastwood to Wayne and, you know, back and probably when I realized I didn't know enough about silent cinema, I spent five years then learning about the earliest silent cinema. And that's where you come across Francis Ford and, and you find out that, you know, there really was no, there was no uh, industrial uh, sort of film industry structure he was part of a group of 15 to 20 people who made two or three films a week. And the films were one or two reels, so they were 12 or 24 minutes long. And they kind of made those on the lay of the land, you know, pay somebody to use their house, uh, pay a downtown to or bootleg it, you know, just don't pay anybody, just do it. <laughs> And uh, you really fall in love with that period. This is 1908 to 1914. It's got that SST Records kind of anarchic spirit to it, I think, yeah. right? Yeah, and there's a little bit of jazz to it. It's just uh, improvisational. Something in the paper today was just about, um, yeah, it was the, the Financial Times uh, uh, columnist was asking, are, are we going to have another Roaring Twenties? Because we came out of, World War One and the uh, Spanish flu in 1919. So in 2020, are we coming out of the pandemic and uh, you know what, whatever? Uh, really, that was that was the main disaster. You know, there's no economic recession, but he doesn't go into detail because who who can? There's no you know, there's plenty of music, but there's no container for the music and the movies. You know, I don't know. Uh, it seems to me Disney fills theaters. Now, why doesn't Disney buy AMC Theater? Because they're, uh, you know, fending off bankruptcy. No other studio fills theaters. Can Disney sit sit around and just make do with the theaters that survive? 
you know, the same thing is true of rock clubs. You know, the, the clubs in Chicago are part of this, uh, it's almost like a, a business association designed to survive this uh, shutdown for over a year. That guy who uh, used to run uh, Maverick for Madonna got the bright idea of buying 51% of all these clubs and getting a uh, national chain of rock clubs on the cheap and uh, becoming a player, <laughs> you know, I guess, you know, to compete with live uh, entertainment or, you know, you know, yeah. whatever the, the lay of the land is so different, but it it is uh, frighteningly uh, ripe for antitrust. But anyway, culturally, be nice if, you know, there was a roaring 20s again. When you look back, the teens were also roaring in terms of film. That's you know, the, the first Nickelodeon was 1905, so the real boom in film production is 1908. That was, those were the years you could walk into the business anywhere, New York, L.A., San Antonio, Colorado. Chicago was a big center of films, filmmaking. When an art form is, and its business elements are ripe, the business takes precedence over the art. You know, after punk rock, after Nirvana, the industry's on its heels a little bit, and it'll yield up a little bit of its power, but it doesn't want to. They'll look around and decide uh, not to sign somebody, even if it seems, you know, like fairly obvious, If you know, if you saw the Sleepers gigs, or you saw the Wipers gigs, or you saw... Uh, the Dead Kennedys, you know, I mean, Black Flag. People saw them and thought, no, I'm not going to sign them. <laughs> you know? yeah. It's hard to believe, but in the end, you blame, I blame radio more than record labels at the time. Because a lot of those A&R guys were very, often they didn't like contemporary music. They were obsessive about Elvis or, you know, the British Invasion, or they, you know, were really into uh, Mike Bloomfield or, you know, some something more like a classic classical rock. It's one of the problems you identify in Stone Mail is that American artists, instead of looking to their own genuine folk traditions for inspiration, they grab at novelties from Europe and the third world. Why do you think that is? I think it's, you know, pretension. You know, it's like it's it's not enough to, uh, uh, to to be into rock and roll. It's not um, doesn't pay off um, to the uh, ego enough. I mean, if you go back to a discography of '50s rock and roll, I mean, it's almost bra brainless music. You know, yeah. there's like a million songs called "Rock, Rock, Rock" or "Rock Now" or "Brighton Rock" or whatever. You know, just you know, it's not much on their mind, and uh, and that's sort of the value of American culture is we 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 left Europe and backed off of European refinement, and um, culture became a, a, a something that came up from the folk, and then it was forced to deal with uh, the black uh, musical spirit and the uh, Native American uh, musical spirit and uh, and the Latin uh, spirit. And so all of this stuff is authorless, you know, just people are running into each other 
and uh, adapting. But, you know, the intellectual can't really make heads or tails of this country. It's it's too out of, out of hand, off the chain, whatever, whatever you want to say. And Marx was talking about Europe. Europe, in those days, each nation had its own armaments industry. <clears throat> so it was a real closed system competition. There wasn't too much trade. There was spice trade and China and... Uh, they were really going to, you know, I don't know, they were really going to have it out between the French and the Germans and the Italians and the English, you know, once and for all. And uh, it was easy for an intellectual to look at that and make up, you know, make up rules. But I don't think Marx and Engels, you know, ever thought their, their theory applied to the United States. They just couldn't make heads or tails out of what was going on over here. You see it in music most I think you can see it in literature too, but in music you can you can you can you can wonder why why is rock and roll considered uh, countercultural? At some point, you understand that it's so of the United States that it's tr- a tradition. You know, your question was a, about tradition and whether young people ignore tradition in a in a way you're young so you're straining against tradition and then you you've been making music for 10 years you begin to readapt to a tradition mm-hmm. and uh in in our days at SST at that point at 10 years you got signed to a major label you know, if you were Husker Du, Firehose, the Meat Puppets, uh, those are the original early bands anyway, you know, that got onto major labels. And they were all, they all had settled down a bit from their kind of young male, I'm going to leave, you know, marks on this culture, you know, impact. I'm going to crack the uh, glass. And later you want to get on the radio, you know, and you want to articulate. You So you're, you're trying to improve, you know, the whole time. But you know, there's something about when you when you want to pull a record off and listen to rock and roll, you're gonna want to listen to the first Descendants or the early Minutemen or you know the early Meat Puppets and the early Husker Du. The artists don't know what to make of that because they've got five or ten or twenty albums they did since those records, and they're better. You know, <laughs> you can you know on any on any level they're better except spirit the sort of animal impact of young males trying to do something they're not quite they haven't quite mastered it there's some there's some uh, energy factor that is you can't maintain that would they be too self-conscious as well are they are they too self-conscious of what they're doing at that point well i i think that you know they're they're genuinely looking to to do what they've done in the past better and they have more tools and they have more control and it's more despite themselves that the form itself rewards the rough the rough and ready approach when they don't have those tools if you look at somebody like john lee hooker or um jimmy rogers the blues guy there's such continuity you know, in those careers, they they figured out one thing, and then they kept doing it. And they have a new song lyric each time, but they have a kind of a 
reduction reductionary style that becomes what they do and everything they do is of a piece and it's so good it's so in the pocket and so expressive with such little uh seeming effort i mean that's all they did so they put a lot into it it seems easy and simple and uh you know, in a way, Chuck Berry was a little bit like that, but uh, he was not truly solo. His p- piano player was, you know, is now sort of recognized as as a crucial part of his uh, sound. But as a guitar player, he he was, you know, a stylist, as Jerry Lee Lewis would call it. When I wrote "Rock and the Pop Narcotic," I was still had a prog rock kind of inheritance coming out of you know, the early 70s and getting into King Crimson and uh, Mahavishnu and um, even Jimi Hendrix, you know, uh, starting the song with one sound of the guitar and uh, transmuting it into a completely different sound at the, by the end of the song. Uh, Midnight is, you know, is is an instrumental of Hendrix's that is really a key a key text, as, as uh, Creel Marcus would say. Anyway, it's, it's uh, you know, the pretension means like it's got to be blows against the empire for it to be worth your time. If it's just rock and roll, if your lyrics aren't overblown political ideas or experimental modern poetry, you know, that not worthy of attention... And uh, that, you know, and that's just, you have to be, you have to be ready for both, both and all of it, really, you know, the, the ambitious stuff and the simple stuff. And, uh, you know, in a way, that's where that New York stuff came in with the Ramones or television. There's simple, a simple conceptual approach. So the Ramones, you could posit are like uh, John Lee Hooker. Richard Held and the Voidoids were, were more like a harsher R&B band. Mm-hmm. But uh, television was a little different. There were maybe, you know, <clears throat> but very advanced, you know, in terms of how they were arranging the songs. And it's interesting to read the Peter Lochner book because uh, it's Adele Bertai's, uh take on people like Tom Berlane and Richard Hell. As they related to Lochner, who didn't maybe feel worthy, even though you know she's convinced he he raided but destroyed himself because of doubt. And so your your next question is, well then who is Tom Berlane, and who is Richard Hell, and why do they step on the stage like they're the only one who belong there? I guess they're assholes. <laughs> that helps. <laughs> That's one I strategy. Hell, hell certainly is that that, that much. Uh, I mean, I I don't know either of them. I I've I also seen, don't know seen television, and you you know you read about them, and they're fascinating people. I always like Mike Watt's story of seeing whatever the the business card of uh, Richard Hell reproed in Trouser Press, and it, and it just said Hell with a phone number. And so uh, Mike called the phone number and said, is this hell? And he goes, yeah. And then Mike got nervous and hung up. <laughs>
<laughs> <laughs> but he just put his phone number, you know, in his <laughs> and that, with his picture. And, uh, you know. That takes some nerve. Well, and he's a bass player and a singer. And he was, he, he was out of, probably out of two bands already, you know. The Heartbreakers and uh, the television. I mean, yeah. And then and then he puts a third band together. It's, it's great. But, it, you know, it doesn't last. No. But, um, you know, he had his chance. He got on a major distribution label and um, didn't get on television that I know of. But there's there's so much going on in this, in this country at, at any one time. And the industry would like to slow it down, you know, for its returns, but um, I really was glad to, you know, to do the research on um, the, the early silent era of filmmaking because the growth of the business was just incredible. And you had these people who were in a new form and they were coming up with what did people want to see? And they you know, there's there are some uh, some uh, of the uh, early cinema books that stress the importance of sentiment. I just saw the um, uh, 1913 Tom Mix film somebody posted on his birthday. Uh, I think two days ago was his birthday, and uh, and they posted uh, one of his movies he made in uh, New in Las Vegas, New Mexico, and it's a great little film. You know, 20 minutes and. Uh, but but it it's got this overwhelming sentimental come on and um and as well as the stunts and that's what people enjoyed and they were you know we're a fallen audience you know and you don't realize that if you watch 20s silent films but if you go back to the teens that's what Mary Pickford was saying when you know she was so distressed in the early 30s with the when sound came in and everyone was sarcastic and uh, jabbering away, you know, and uh, and uh, in these movies, all the characters, she felt like she should destroy all of her films because they were so sentimental and cheerful and positive, and that that the industry could only now make fun of those movies. You know, they they often put um, dialogue or narration to make fun of silent films in, you know, in short subjects in the theaters. And, and that just, um, that ruined her, her life, her retirement. Ruined a lot of people's lives, I imagine, the transition to sound. Do you think that there are obvious losses with that inevitable transition in the late 20s, early 30s? Any gains that, uh, that you can think of? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I, I I read the newspapers and think a lot about uh, what's wrong with the newspapers. And uh, when you read history of of the great newspapers of you know the early part of the 20th century, you know, everyone was in love with newspapers, and uh, a typical story is they quit high school after two years and uh, apprenticed as, you know, whatever, an ink boy or, a, you know, a copy boy and uh, became a reporter in their early 20s. 
now everyone goes to college. So, you know, they're all 22, 24, come out of journalism schools. They know nothing, you know, but school. And in the 30s, when sound came in, you know, I happened to be in New York when uh, the Film Forum was running a Lee Tracy series where he either played, he, he was a great fast-talking, you know, actor in the early 30s for talkies. When they came in, he just really stood out and he played reporters or he played press agents in New York or Hollywood, uh, very cynical, very funny and uh, and talked a mile a minute. And there is some sentiment. I mean, <laughs> these guys are always forced to reconcile their cynicism with the destruction of this or that innocent person's life, that they've just increased the pain of, you know, the murder victim's mother or, you know, something is t- a typical plot device. And... And they're shamed by, you know, some girl or their girlfriend or uh, someone who's still a human being, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and uh, and they're like a media uh, monster. And uh, when you see the, the negativity of the news media today, uh, you kind of think it's vicarious. They really don't know anything about life or the country and they've gone sour because their life is vicarious and if you watch movies you know vicarious experiences are in a way stronger than real ones you know when you when you're in a war or a scene of violence there's something um undramatic about it what shocks you is not a crescendo of music and cutting. What shocks you is a bit of surrealistic. Did that guy just pull out that knife and plunge it into that person's back, or is he waving it at me? You know, that's a shock on a different level than what you get in a movie. You know, you have news media people who see real things in the real world, but they're not... You know, they're they're not the critics and the columnists and the political reporters and stuff. I'd love to talk about your book, Enter Naomi. Enter Naomi is your memoir about what you saw and experienced at SST Records and the surrounding LA music scene in the first half of the 80s. And it's also a tribute to the late Naomi Peterson, who was a friend of yours and SST's house photographer. And you write that among 1980s music photographers, her work is indispensable. What do you think distinguishes her work from more recognized peers like Glennie Friedman or Ed Culver? Well, her her uh, relationship with the bands was different just because she was female and good-looking and uh, exotic-looking. Uh, her mother was Japanese. So, you know, as as we were talking about, you know, the 80s, the, the lack of glamour of punk rock... Um, that was failing commercially. If you saw the girls who were at the metal shows on the Sunset Strip, that scene started probably by Van Halen and Quiet Riot and Motley Crue. And, you know, um, those were, I would say, not serious girls. You know, they, I don't know, 
I'm sure they all wound up as housewives in the valley. <laughs> but uh, but uh, Naomi and and the the girls who who moved around L.A. as teenagers, you know, for Black Flag gigs or TSOL shows or you know whatever whatever was going on in the clubs and you know LA was a uh, a different kind of place and uh, I worried about all of the photos she took when I heard that she had died and I suspected that I knew how she died because you know she had tried to kill herself and and I had met her because she came to SST um, because she knew uh, Greg and Chuck were going to help her. That was where she went when her father wouldn't let her in the house after a late night out, out uh, you know, as whatever she was, 17 or 18. He, you know, Chuck then introduced her to me as she has a camera because he knew I couldn't get, <laughs> I couldn't get Glenn Friedman or, or Ed Culver to, to go to the Minutemen shows or... You know, we were going to be doing uh, Sacrum Trust and St. Vitus and the Meat Puppets. And um, these bands were, Ed made sure he shot everybody once. And Glenn shot what he liked. Neither was going to cover our bands in the way that I was going to need it. You know, I was going to need new photos of the, of the Minutemen twice a year at least because you know they were going to do two two or three records a year you know i don't i didn't know why chuck hadn't introduced her to me before because i needed a photographer you know here i am i'm talking to her she's got bandages on her wrist cuz she cut her wrist and then came into sst and uh, the night before and you know we all we're all in one room black flag and me and mugger I don't know what's going on around me. I'm not in the band. So, you know, the the girls are there for the band. That, you know, I, I but anyway, at, from that point on, I, you know, worried about her and didn't know if pulling her in to the industry, so to speak, was a good thing in the long run or a bad thing for her. But, um, you know, we needed a photographer, and, and she became that photographer, and she pulled it off, even though she always had other jobs and restaurants and whatnot, because she burned through money, you know, um, in restaurants and bars uh, quite a bit. And Is that and what made it hard for her to establish herself, her lifestyle? I think she was impatient with, you know, the business of that you know business of music photography and really ask yourself in 1983 if you went to the la times or rolling stone or bam magazine and said uh, i'm a photographer hire me send me out on jobs they would have sent her out on very boring jobs to, to 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 shoot musicians she did not care about so in, in that sense, that may never have been a possibility that she could have been a professional photographer. She, uh, you know, she, she had a, uh, a low tolerance for boredom. The major labels paid people. They weren't signing bands. So she had the run of the, the best bands of the 80s. I, you know, after I wrote the book... I mean, I wrote the family first. I did a people search and found 
who I thought was the family and wrote a letter to her mother and she gave it to Naomi's brother. And then I heard from him and got to know him and he shared me uh, her journals. And then after the book came out, he found additional journals. And then I thought, I mean, I knew that, um, you know, I write screenplays and so I normally would think about writing a screenplay, but I I couldn't imagine writing her dialogue, uh, but these journals were the perfect solution. So, you know, I've used those as a voiceover device in in a screenplay, and and it's perfect because, you know, I could never have come up with that uh, voice. And uh, and so, you know, we're basically co-writers of the screenplay, and um, I'm, I'm just finishing it, so I'm just getting ready to figure out how to, you know, approach my uh, lifelong nemesis of the Hollywood entertainment industry <laughs> with this script, you know, that is not like my normal stuff, which tend to be uh, action movie scripts. You know? But you're hopeful somebody will know how to handle this material and be able to, to market it and do everything in a respectful way. Uh, that That's probably a long shot, but... <laughs> In a in a in a way, Naomi wrote her own uh, ironclad plot, and she dies at 38. And uh, there's not much you can do with that story because the ancillary material, you know, a, a book of photographs or a Naomi documentary or whatever else uh, Chris Peterson gets going, um, will are is premised. She died, so it's not like they can take the story and uh, turn it into a female empowerment triumph, you know, of uh, riot girl ideology. It's just not there in in the story. It's it's not what's interesting about it. I hope you're able to get it told, though. I would see it. I would definitely watch it, Joe. I do think that you know the '80s is, you know, you don't call it nostalgia, really these days because you know the the media are churning everything all at the same time you know whether it's Jane Austen or uh, Avengers you know it's just uh, it's constant nothing there is no consensus and a revolution of the consensus and a change and, and so i think you can approach the 80s almost you know, Tarantino approached the 70s with uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. You know, he changed history so that he could make a Tarantino film out of it, I guess. But uh, to go through the 80s and then from Los Angeles to Washington, D.C., like Naomi did, it does it does work. It is, <clears throat> it is its own story of what rock and roll and the sexual revolution and the birth control pill, you know, what it wrought. Things have settled down a little bit, but, you know, it's it's sort of like a a message in a bottle from a much rougher era. And that's always interesting. Yeah. Uh, Just just that because it's dramatic. People's lives were maybe more dramatic because you did, everything was playing itself out in the 60s, 70s, 80s. It's over with now. It's it's determined now. One line that comes up in Enter Naomi a lot is, "You'll you'll be 
sort of reminiscing about a person telling their story and you'll say, I hope he's okay, or I hope she's okay now. So it, it does seem like there are a lot of wounded people and casualties from that period. Yeah. Yeah. You have to wonder, I mean, uh, as mentioned the B- Michael Belfer book, the stories are crazy. I mean, there's, there are drugs involved and bikers and violence and, you know, Ricky Williams was their singer and he, he was literally, you know, crazy. He was a basket case and, uh, but he looked like a rock God and, uh, good voice too. He sang like one, you know, I mean, he does, he deserved a career. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, it was a great band all around. And you just thought, oh, you know, I mean, uh, it sort of sealed us in this politicized view of what we were doing in a way, <clears throat> because, you weren't going to get anywhere. I mean, it was a it was a conspiracy. No band this good would ever be signed. And what do you make of that? Well, uh, do you hate Jan Wenner? Do you hate um, Clive Davis? <laughs> I mean, I mean, who's who's at the top of this conspiracy? And you know, why does Ricky Williams have to? sleep on a park bench, you know, regularly, um, or depend on, you know, suburban girls to uh, sneak them into the basement of their dad's house. <clears throat> you know, it, it's it just, it was nonsense. And uh, <clears throat> I thought, um, I thought SST didn't get where it should have gone, you know, in the period of, you know, the early 80s. I left in 86. But we did the best with, you know, with what was available, which was, you know, which was uh, not much. When you arrived at SST to work there in 1981, did you expect to be living at the offices and relying on Greg Ginn's parents for your meals? I didn't expect to be, I didn't know his parents, and um, I just thought that uh, I'd be living with the band in the office, and... uh, that um, I thought we'd be releasing the Damaged album ourselves. It wouldn't be ideal, but the money would be would come back to us. Instead, it went to Unicorn and never came to us. And uh, um, so I was disappointed right away that Unicorn was involved. But uh, you know that was for the band to decide. And there were plenty of records to keep in print and to put out and record. And so. You know, I was settling in to, you know, to do that, and um, and those bands were the Minutemen and Sack and Trust and Overkill and and uh, then the Meat Puppets and uh, Stains um, and later St. Vitus and and so you know Who's Do that was you know going to be fun, but I, I really wanted to work with Black Flag because of the touring and everything they were doing. It was the logical next step that had to be taken to to um you know to do anything to improve the music kids were listening to basically you know going back to that's what the ramones talked about in all the interviews they did was you know trying to reach the kids with good music stop this boring stuff (laughs) that uh, they were being fed did you share that ssd black flag insane work ethic uh I didn't um I didn't relate to it that 
weigh so much. Uh, I had put my writing on hold because, you know, in terms of screenwriting, I didn't, I was too young. I didn't know enough about life and whatnot to really be good at it. So I put it on hold and, and just went with the work at hand at Systematic and then at SST. And SST was more immersive because um, you didn't leave the office. <laughs> you you lived in it. And, uh, but still, you know, I would, I would work till uh, three, or, three or so, and then I'd go shoot baskets, and then I'd walk up to the Gins if we didn't have any cash to eat at a restaurant. And uh, we had a refrigerator at some point, and um, and the Gins were, you know, a great uh, family of people. You know, the parents, the kids, and um, so it was always interesting to to talk to them and they were interested in what their sons were doing and uh and their daughters too i'm sure i didn't i didn't know the daughters as well but yeah i mean it was uh it was uh great as far as you know what you could do it was difficult because the band had problems with unicorn then they had problems on the road then they wanted to bring their own pa on the road and uh, i remember mugger thinking, gee, you know, <laughs> that Greg is never going to make any money because the minute they were free to make some money, they decide to borrow money and build their own custom PA, and and that meant two trucks were going to have to be uh, uh, filled with, you know, gasoline and moved around the country with twice as many people, you know, uh, in the crew. But, you know, we were used to Greg and and uh, what he was going to require, so we just rolled with it. You left SST in 1986 to pursue writing. In hindsight, do you think you left early, late, or at just the right time? I was uh, resisting leaving for maybe two years just because, you know, there were bad vibes uh, coming out of the... Uh, unicorn thing and uh you know it was good to separate the band and global where they practiced from sst and in any case we sort of had to because sst needed a larger and larger warehouse so it began moving every year basically in 1983 it was much easier to run you know the boring parts of a record label with Greg and Chuck not in the office because they were full of ideas. <clears throat> and uh, to go back to film, they remind me in retrospect of what I've read about Orson Welles, which is that every day he had rethought everything he was doing. You know, he'd wake up uh, with a new plan, and so Citizen Kane would change every morning. The plan changed, and the editing scheme, and the uh, shooting uh, ideas, and um, he exhausted everyone around him. This was kind of like what made Greg and Chuck uh, such interesting people. Is they everything was every idea was open for debate to the point where it was hard to schedule simple stuff like you got to have <clears throat> you got to have these labels printed so that. They're ready when the record is ready to press. 
and the inner sleeve has to be done, and, <clears throat> you know, the album cover. The real problem with a record label is that you have about 10, um, 10 steps before you have a record done and in your hand and ready to ship. And you've got to promote it, so you've got to, you know, in those days we were probably sending out 400 copies to press and radio. The Dead Kennedys did not do that. <laughs> they serviced the fanzines, and uh, I don't know what they did with uh, major, you know, major media and stuff. But we pushed on every door. That was our ambition. So anyway, it it it, it was a you know it was the ambitions and ideas of Greg and Chuck versus the the uh, shit workers, you know, of Carducci and Mugger and Spot. And, you know, uh, they, I remember <laughs> we had, we were at the Redondo Beach SST one time and I had put out an SPK album uh, on my uh, Thermidor label up in uh, the Bay Area in, in uh, Berkeley. And so they were touring and they stayed in their van outside of SST in Redondo Beach, and, um, you know, they're just standing around when Greg is telling Spot that he has to go back to the uh, two-inch masters, or no, I'm sorry, the quarter-inch masters for the uh, Everything Went Black compilation of uh, early Black Flag recordings, and do, you know, do something over again. Mm-hmm. And uh, and Spot was standing there with a reel of two-inch tape. He, <laughs> he, he started waving the tape around in exasperation, and he threw it up uh, against the ceiling, and then it fell down to the concrete floor and dented the reel, which... If you know what a two-inch reel of Ampex tape looks like, that's that's a thick piece of metal that dented. But I remember thinking, I'm glad uh, Graham Ravel got to see this because he's going to keep hearing about SST and he's going to think, how could those numbskulls be achieving anything, <laughs> you know, based on what I just saw? And, you know, sure enough, he's, he's a big uh, soundtrack uh, creator now. But I was sort of always interested when, uh, you know, the uh, the post punks and the uh, and the SST punks got to look at each other. I, I, it was sort of like my early uh, compadres at Rough Trade, you know, running into my uh, SST compadres, and I knew that that was a bigger culture clash than you know you, you know people would imagine. A huge thanks to Joe for his time. Copies of his five books, published on his own Redoubt Press imprint, are available from nightheronbooks.com. Go there now. As always, thank you for listening. If you like, you can follow us on Twitter at RockRitPod. We're back again in two weeks. Take care, and see you then. (laughs) 